Enlightenment Radio, Rupo VSOMU Svidu. Zed Vami 24 Godini Musiki, Prami Translacy Tarmishtasni Pied de Visan Harista Pied Kavs Mishtagnoi Podrozi, Tokakon. This is Enlightenment Radio. You're in tune to. And this is your host, Misty Guide, with our special edition today of Thanksgiving Story. And you can't have Thanksgiving and don't use the word God. God and Thanksgiving are one thing. When we are thankful, we are thankful to God. When we pray, we pray to God by way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that this country prospered, every reason this country prospered more than every country, the reason this country was prospering and we grow food, we could feed ourselves, we had energy, we had prosperity, we had everything, and it was all because of God. And most of the people and most of our leaders recognized it, recognized it. And on Thanksgiving, it became a symbol of our thankfulness with a table full of good food <laughs> cooked by these wonderful women and some men. But it was a day we came together to thank God for our prosperity and our grateful, wonderful country that he gave us. And it was given to us because of the tyranny that was going on in Europe, religious tyranny. Mainly, they wouldn't let him worship the one true God. So I'm here to tell you, Mystic Guide, a few things I'll introduce by marketing, and then I'll go on with the story. We are on Apple and Android for your apps. We are on Spotify with your podcasts. As a matter of fact, this podcast will be repeated every few hours on our rotation all weekend. Let me tell you another thing about Thanksgiving. First of all, The Mystical Voyage. Remember, themysticalvoyage.com is our mother station our mother website, where you can read Christ in a Mystery, a mystical approach to conscious enlightenment out of the scriptures, and study the three paradigm pyramids, body, soul, and spirit for a transformation in your life. Now, having said that, this is the busiest travel weekend in the country, probably in the world. I mean, people, I don't know, maybe, they, why are they going to Europe this time of year? I don't know. But th th this is the busiest air traffic time and road traffic time the day before Thanksgiving, and the Sunday is the busiest travel day of the year, bar none. And that's when they seem to have problems with their airplanes. <laughs> oh, I hate to be one of those stranded. At, you've heard of these stories of people stranded at the airport overnight? Oh, my God. Anyway, I've quit flying since about three years ago. 
It's just maddening. And it's just all the crap you got to go through to get on a plane. It's so phony. Anyway, I'm going to start off with the uh, story of Christmas. <laughs> story of Christmas. The story of Thanksgiving, how it came about. Then I'm going to read a chapter from my book called The Ancestor, which takes place during the Civil War. And it's the year 1864, which is the first official legitimate signing of the proclamation by Abraham Lincoln that made it an official federal holiday every year. For a while, they didn't have a time. Then they then they gave it the time to the last Thursday of the month or something like that. So, without any further ado, here's a story of Thanksgiving. In North America, you'll notice the leaves are changing color. Pumpkin spice lattes are back, and Charlie Brown is playing on TV. That must mean it's time for Thanksgiving, with family, friends, and loads of turkey. Even if you're not an American, you've probably heard of the holiday. But the image of pacifist settlers singing Kumbaya alongside the natives is all wrong. The story begins on a cold pier in England in August of 1620, when 120 men, women, and children stepped onto two English merchant ships in Southampton Harbor, bound for the Americas. Both vessels seemed to be held together by spit and prayers. The speedwell was so old, it had fought against the Spanish Armada in 1588, and the Mayflower was such an ungainly transport ship that it could barely sail into the wind. And since the North Atlantic in the fall and winter is nothing but westerly winds, it was the absolute worst ship to try and attempt a crossing with. But somehow, the Mayflower had made it to the Americas twice before, even if it had taken twice as long as normal. Luckily, these would-be colonists were determined. They had to be. They were Brownists, religious dissenters from the Anglican Church of England. You see, the Brownist beliefs were relatively simple. The first, that only the word of the Holy Bible was infallible. The second, that individual churches and their local communities should have more say and autonomy in the goings-on of the church. Both these beliefs were aimed at jettisoning the corrupt power structure of the old Catholicism. That didn't happen. As the new church started looking more Catholic by the day, the Brownists bought themselves a printing press and began passing out leaflets to oppose it, which led to the Brownists becoming intimately familiar with the inside of London's prison system. They got such a bad rap that Shakespeare even mentions them in one of his plays, Twelfth Night, where he says, I had as gladly be a Brownist as a politician. Not exactly a flattering comparison. So the Pilgrims decided to risk it all as a startup colony in the Americas, creaky boat and all. It would be an English colony, but one not bound by religious politics. So they set sail and braved the rough fall seas in August of 1620. They hadn't even made it out of the port, though, before they found that the speedwell was taking on water. So they pulled over in Dartmouth for repairs. Undaunted, they shored the leaking boards and sat out again to a new life and watched with glee as Land's End and Cornwall slipped away behind them. Only to turn around and immediately see it again. The speedwell had recently been refitted with a larger mast and somebody had clearly botched the job. The ship was going nowhere. So 20 people agreed to stay behind and bring more of their congregation with them the next year and 102 crammed onto the already overloaded Mayflower, finally leaving again on the 6th of September. Or maybe it was the 16th. No one's actually sure. The calendars in that period are a bit wonky. Their trip was mercifully dull after recent events. But halfway across the ocean, the Pilgrims' good luck set back in again. A storm and strong winds hit, 
In the middle of the storm, a deep snap echoed through the ship. A main beam had cracked. So they pulled a spare from the hold and tried to reinforce it. But the buckling was so severe that it wouldn't stay in place. That meant it was time to turn around and go back to England. Again. The delays had already exhausted all the Pilgrims' money, and for them, that wasn't an option. So they decided to try something else first. They had brought a great iron screw with them as cargo, likely a piece of the exact printing press that had gotten them kicked out of England in the first place, and used that to raise the new beam into place. Somehow, it held long enough to get them across the Atlantic. They sighted land on night November, just off Cape Cod, then turned south for the Hudson River Valley, hoping to move closer to established colonies and warm weather. But hard winter currents forced them back to Massachusetts, where they set up anchor in the natural harbor of Provincetown. Knowing that their previous claim on this new land had been dodgy at best, the settlers agreed to draw up a new contract for their colony, styling it the Mayflower Compact. It organized them as a civil body politic, created for the general good of the colony, where issues would be decided by vote. This set of rules and beliefs set down by the pilgrims has since been called the world's first written constitution. The men of the ship put their names to paper, and they all signed the agreement together. And within weeks, they would all begin dying together. Scurvy and illness took hold of the boat, and as the first snows arrived, it turned the ship into an icy tomb. Exploration parties were sent out to find a suitable place to build, and any man who could still stand was put aboard with swords, armor, and matchlocks. They found a deserted landscape and found themselves strangers in an unknown land, filled with native burials and abandoned villages. But everywhere they went, eyes watched them. Going as far as they could each day, they camped on the shores, and in the dim morning, they draped their jackets over a barricade to dry and made to move their boats back into the water. And that's when the arrows began to rain down on them. Grabbing muskets, they fired blindly into the forest. Their leader appeared from behind a tree and fired three arrows directly at the pilgrims. The man gave a triumphant cry and then disappeared again into the forest. The pilgrims searched the area but found no bodies, only 18 arrows tipped with deer horn, brass, and eagle's claws. When they went to retrieve their jackets, they found them riddled with arrow holes. Guessing that as many as 30 or 40 men waited for them in the forest, the pilgrims left before they could return. The next day, they found the building place they were looking for, well-suited to winter construction, already cleared of timber, with tall hills for defensive positions. But it was also full of dead bodies. Patuxet had been a village of the Wampanoag people, until it had been wiped out by an outbreak of Indian fever three years earlier. The epidemic was bad enough that the colonists found unburied skeletons still inside their homes. But with more settlers dying by the second, the pilgrims were in no shape to be picky. They moved the Mayflower to join them and began construction. The first common house that was finished became a hospital for the ill, and the 19 families then each built their own town, huddled together for defense. And by February, the settlement was complete. But without food or proper shelter, they continued to die off one by one by one. And by the time the snows thawed, only 47 of the original 102 pilgrims were still alive, and half of the Mayflower crew had died as well. Those that survived now faced the danger of summer raiding parties, so they decided to fortify the village, bringing cannons from the ship to point outwards into the unknown wilds. 
finally free of the bitter cold, they planted corn taken from the abandoned graves and storehouses of the old Wampanoag village. And with that first thaw came their first contact with the locals. A man, tall and dark-skinned, boldly strode out of the forest and made to walk directly into the center of their town. The pilgrims stopped him, guns pointed. Then he opened his mouth and greeted them in English, welcoming them to the new land and then promptly asked for a beer to drink. He was Samoset of the eastern Abenaki, who'd spent years trading tales and supplies with English fishermen who passed through the area. And as he swapped stories over his acquired taste for English delicacies, he warned that not every tribe would be as friendly as his. But they could get little more out of him as his English was broken at best. The next week, Samoset returned with a new man, Tisquantum, known today as Squanto, who spoke fluent English. He was the last survivor of the Patuxet tribe, the very land the pilgrims now inhabited, who had been taken by slavers as a boy and had lived in Spain and England before escaping back home again, only to find his own people had been wiped out by disease. He had been taken captive, a useful tool to deal with the continuing English encroachment. Squanto heralded the arrival of 60 armed warriors and their chief, the Wampanoag. The pilgrims grabbed their muskets and ran to the walls and waited for the worst. But neither side wanted to make the first move. With a bit of back and forth from Squanto, their chief, Masasuit, agreed to sit down with the pilgrims' governor. And after a healthy amount of liquor to loosen up both sides, they set about with the business of peace. See, the Wampanoag found themselves beset on all sides by enemy tribes, with plenty of land but no power to hold them back. Where others saw the English settlers as a threat, Masaswit saw an opportunity. The pilgrims agreed to help the chief against his enemies by using their muskets and cannons, in return for mutual protection, and some much-needed agricultural advice from Squanto, specifically how to plant the native foods that the pilgrims had never before encountered. And so began an unlikely friendship where Squanto passed on his knowledge of the land. Under his tutelage, the pilgrims learned how to plant corn, bean, and squash in a way that ensured that each would thrive. When they weren't planting, they sent diplomatic parties out to every tribe in a 50-mile radius to agree to mutual peace, and took time to knock the heads of anyone who threatened their native allies. So by the time the fall came and the harvest ready to be brought in, they found themselves looking quite optimistically to the new year, especially in comparison to the last. It was in this spirit that the men were sent into the forest to shoot a few game birds, likely turkeys and waterfowl, for a feast to give thanks to the Lord for their bounty and good luck. Masasuit joined them with 90 of his people and brought along five deer for the occasion. Add to that a few eels, some fish, crabs, and a lobster or two, and of course, their freshly harvested corns, beans, and squash. And you got yourself the first Thanksgiving dinner. It was a celebration that lasted for three days. A harvest festival with sport, games, and friends. Like so many others around the world. Days of Thanksgiving. Thankful that there will be enough food to eat. And another year survived. Sure, the new land wasn't perfect. It wasn't harmony between man and beast or a permanent peace between settler and native. But for a time, people set aside their differences and gave their thanks for a chance at life. And many other harvest festivals appear around the world today for just the same thing. 
And that's the story of the first Thanksgiving. That's the story of the first Thanksgiving. I think it was a act of God that we got together like that. And at first, our treatment and their treatment of the Native Americans was of God. Then the devil got involved, like he does everything. It's a spiritual battle we're in. We didn't were fighting the Indians. We weren't hating the Indians. It was the devil that was causing division. And it was, how shall I say, a, not a catastrophe. It was a tragedy what happened to the Native American. And it's very tribal, like it is in the Middle East right now. The Middle East are just tribes. If you ever watched the movie Lawrence of Arabia, the Turks were about ready to take over the Middle East. Syria, Damascus, Aqaba, and Lawrence of Arabia, British soldier, was tacked with the duty of bringing it to a halt and getting the Turks out of there. So what he did was he met in tents with the camels, with the Arabs, with the tribes, and he brought all these tribes who could not get along, he brought them all together to fight the Turks. So it can be done. You can bring back, you can bring factions together that hate each other for different stupid reasons, and they fight like one, and they beat the Turks. And the Turks were in a long marching walk back to Turkey, kind of like Hamas. He raised his sword and he said, take no prisoners. And there wasn't one left that made it back to Turkey. So I just thought I'd bring that in because it is by divine providence that God will bring people together in order to form a more perfect union. And they did with their founding fathers of America, who left the tyranny of Europe, religious tyranny, you could not practice the Bible accurately or what you believed in without being burned at the stake, tortured, put in prison. Anyway, now back to Thanksgiving. That's why they came over to America, for freedom of religion first, and freedom of speech second, and they always kept the freedom to bear arms. So Lincoln wrote, I believe, nine proclamations. You can find it on the collected works of Abraham Lincoln on the internet. And during this presidency, Abraham issued a total of nine proclamations of prayer, fasting, or thanksgiving. And the first one was issued on August 12, 1861. This is in the, the thing of my back, back of my book. Uh, and in response to the request from Congress, the source of the text of the document. So they're all in the Library of Congress. And it says here was the first proclamation was given in 1861. Now, the official proclamation that made it a federal holiday and declared it a holiday for all of America wasn't until the middle of the, the, almost the end of the Civil War, in which we were a divided nation. We were divided. But, but something brought us together, and that was God and Thanksgiving. Something divided this country. It was a spiritual division. And, and during the Civil War, I have a book that I wrote called The Ancestor, and the book can be found on Amazon. You've got to put my name by it or they won't find it. There's a couple of books called The Ancestor. The Ancestor by Michael Meyer. And this is a chapter I wrote called Thanksgiving, God, and Country. Now, let me give you the premise of the story of the book. A man in the 2015, a writer, came out of Los Angeles, came back to the South to take care of his mother, but he bought a house. And on that house, he found out there was a time portal. So he went traveling back in time, and that time portal was the year 1864, which happened to be the same year his great-great-grandfather died in Andersonville Prison 
which is here in Georgia. And so it's a collection of fiction based on non-fictional story. And I guess I was inspired by the death of my great-great-grandfather and the suffering he did at Andersonville to keep our union together, to free the slaves, and to carry on as the United States of America. So what happens is, as Daniel keeps crossing the creek, which goes into the timetable of 1864, it creeps up to his house eventually, and his house becomes 1864 plantation. And he has a visit from General Sherman. As the war went on, General Sherman would find a certain farmhouse or a certain place to locate and spend a few days while they strategically outlined what they were going to do during this period of the Civil War. They'd already defeated the main central cities of the Civil War, which was Atlanta, where all the munitions were done, and Vicksburg, where all the food and all the other stuff was being supplied to the South, the Confederates. The Confederates were basically a treasonous group of people who decided to secede from the Union. I don't care what the South says. It was an invasion of their country. It was about slavery, too. The Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln, he was assassination attempts were out on his head before he even made it to Washington after the to the inauguration. The anti-slavery people were up in the north, and the slave people, pro-slavery people, were out to kill him. They were out to secede from the Union. They'd already fired the first shot at Fort Donaldson. They'd already seceded a few states before he even became president. They didn't know he was going to do anything about slavery. He just was against it. But he didn't say he didn't he didn't campaign on it. So this whole thing was a planned operation to a it's an act of treason what the South did. Period. At this gathering, General Sherman, it's in uh, October of the year 1864, when our time traveler goes back and General Sherman is staying at his plantation with a group of soldiers, and he reads the proclamation from Abraham Lincoln in October that this Thanksgiving celebration should be in November, or the last Thursday of November. Well, he looks at his troops and he says, gentlemen, we will not be able to be here for that glorious day in November. However, that doesn't keep us from hunting game and celebrating it right here this tomorrow before I leave for his famous march to the sea. He was waiting He was waiting word from Washington. He was waiting word from Andersonville. And he was waiting word from the governor and the president of the Southern Confederate, Jeff Davis. He was waiting for them to surrender, to lay down their arms, and end the war then. Now, during this time, our protagonist had collected a group of black people, set them free, and made not slaves out of them, but cooks, and uh, they cared for his stables, they cared for his things that he couldn't care for. He also met a woman who had a baby who was on the run from the rebels who were out to rape and pillage the land is what they were doing. And there were, they had three Civil War soldiers, Confederates. They had this woman and her baby, who Daniel liked, and he had, they had the slaves standing around the table, and that table was full of the most delicious Southern food you could ever think of. And General Sherman stood at the head of the table, and he had the proclamation in his hand. And I'm going to read from this chapter now, and I hope you get the understanding that it's in 1864, the Emancipation Proclamation had already been signed to free the slaves, and they were already, after General Sherman marches to the sea, they called him Moses, because he was setting them free all along the way. This is the table setting or the chapter called Thanksgiving, God, and Country. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
Through many dangers, toils, and snares, t'was the grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Dining room in the afternoon. The table was laid out with game from the hunt, with the expectation of the boar's head upon Daniel's insistence. <laughs> he didn't like that boar's head they found on the hunt. So they had a hunt the day before, and that's when they captured the three rebels, okay? then the, So the, the side dishes of potatoes, yams, and dressing are surrounded with vegetables and complemented once again with specially created dishes in fine Louisiana style that only Marcus, their head cook slave, not slave, I'll use the word worker, co-worker, Marcus' secret recipes could provide. Who else could get away with crawdaddy stew on such an occasion? The setting is impeccable, a meal fitting a king for before conquest, and also a gathering of grace and gratitude amongst those about to be seated. William T. Sherman, one of our greatest generals in history, is standing at the head with his generals and their officers, all in full-dress uniform. Sarah is a beautiful gown, is already seated with the center flower arrangement before her. All the servants, that's what they are, servants, my bad, and are standing behind chairs waiting to seat the guests. So we picture them, they're all standing around. Daniel walks, Daniel's the one who, our protagonist's main story, who founded Portal to the Timetable. Nobody can see it but him, by the way. He's at the head of the table. There are three empty chairs with settings placed in front of them. Daniel clears his throat. Gentlemen, nods and sirs are returned. They are seated as Sherman remains standing. I have here, General Sherman, an official declaration by the Secretary Stewart from President Lincoln establishing Thanksgiving as a federal holiday. He looks at the proclamation again. The declaration indicates that it is to be the last Thursday of November. He then looks at the fellow officers with glee, now holding up a wire, which is a telegram, and continues confidently. Great, and I have finally agreed upon a strategy, if not for the stubborn pride of a few of the lost cause of the many, this would be a feast of celebration. Nevertheless, we will hand them the defeat they so deserve. He sets the wire down and proceeds to the Thanksgiving proclamation. In any event, it is my wish to celebrate this honorable occasion right here at this time, giving thanks and honor to our founders and our God and country, who at this hour is so deeply divided with agony of war and the weeping of women and children. I'll also ask Mr. Coffee, our gracious host, to do us the honor of reading from this, our first official declaration, federal holiday from our president and our chief, Abraham Lincoln. So Daniel stands, a bit taken by surprise, Sherman hands the official letter of proclamation to an officer who passes it to Daniel. He can't believe the document he's holding in his hands. Sherman motions, Sergeant, you bring in our other guests. As I take a swig of water, you bring in our other guests. Nobody knows who they are. He signals the three captive Confederates walk in bearing chains and cuffs, yet wearing full uniform taken from other prisoners. The sergeant removes the cuffs. They are seated at the table. Daniel notices a show of some curious expression among the others. Gentlemen, General Sherman, guests, and our staff, please come around closer. The staff gathers around as Mabel, she was one of the head servants, female servants, is patting the baby, Sarah's little baby less than a year old. It has pleased Almighty God. This is how the proclamation starts. It has pleased Almighty God to prolong our national life another year, defending us with his guardian care against unfriendly designs from abroad and vouchsafing 
to us in his mercy many. The rebels' faces are finally looking up. And signal, the rebels' faces are finally looking up. And he, he continues reading. And the signal victories over the enemy, who is our own household. It has also pleased our Heavenly Father to favor, as well as our citizens in their homes, as our soldiers in their camps, and our sailors in the rivers and seas. With unusual health, he has largely augmented our free population by emancipation. Talking about the slave. Daniel looks up at Marcus, because he found Marcus hiding in a shack with a bowie knife guarding Sarah from being attacked. A few of the slaves start shaking and tearing up. They know what emancipation means more than anyone. And by immigration, while he was open to us new sources of wealth and has crowned the labor of our working men in every department of industry in abundance towards more. Moreover, he has been pleased to animate and inspire our minds and hearts with fortitude, courage, and resolution sufficient for the great trial of civil war into which we have been brought by our adherence to a nation. Mabel hands the baby to Marcus. To the cause of freedom, humanity, and to afford us reasonable hopes of an ultimate and happy deliverance from all our dangers and afflictions. Mabel drops to the floor and wails through her sobs. The other servants are mumbling prayers under their breath. The rebels are looking down, hiding their watering eyes. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do hereby appoint and set apart the last Thursday in November, next as a day which I desire to be observed by all my fellow citizens, wherever they may be, then be as a day of thanksgiving and praise to Almighty God, the beneficent creator and ruler of the universe. Now there's a president. Where are they now? They all bow down to the mighty dollar. I'll skip my, my remarks for now. Sarah wipes her tear. Daniel's hands are shaking. And I do further recommend my fellow citizens aforesaid that on the occasion, they do reverently humble themselves. Now slightly choking up, Daniel is. In the dust and from the thence offer up penitent and fervent prayers and supplications to the great disposer of events for return the inestimable blessings of peace, union, and harmony throughout the land, which it has pleased him to assign as a dwelling place for ourselves and for our posterity throughout all generations. Daniel pauses here and looks up around the room. No one is without an emotional expression of tiresome pain, humbleness, and thankfulness in tears of grieving forgiveness. In testimony, whereof I hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be fixed. Daniel sighs and completes the reading. Done at this city of Washington the 20th day of October, A.D. 1864, of the independence of the United States of the 89th, he concludes, signed, Abraham Lincoln. Sherman gathers his composure. That was well done and quite moving. Thank you, Mr. Coffey. Let us eat what God has provided us and most thankful for the hands that prepared it. So Daniel nods and the servants begin serving. Mabel adjusts the baby and works with one hand. Daniel observes her strain and takes Claire and puts her on his lap. Sarah notices the look on Daniel, the looks at Daniel with esteemed admiration. Why, Mr. Daniel, you were, you would sure make a fine daddy. <laughs> Oh, yes, a husband, too. When you read those words of Abraham Lincoln, my soul was so lifted, like I dove taking flight. Such freedom in every word. You truly have commanding voice and delivered it with such authority. Daniel blushes, once again surprised by her unfiltered honesty. 
as the other officers took upon her with envious eyes, he has come to now realize and appreciate that her unbridled openness, blended with such affection, is an attractive characteristic, even surpassing her beauty. Sherman, acutely aware of their distraction, <laughs> reminds them, gentlemen, please, pass the food. <laughs> I have a brandy and a cigar waiting for me. Some laughter warms the room. Daniel, seeking to be fed more than just food, quietly turns to Sarah. You really felt that? Mmm, Sarah said, agrees with her mouth full. Sarah was right. He felt those words flowing through his veins, having to read from the pen of the highest in command before those entrusted to win this war and those to whom this war was being fought. A victory so needed by our country, orchestrated by God according to the president's faith. And I here I stood, the only one in the room who knew the future outcome of the war and the final fate of Abraham Lincoln because he was and living in the past right there. It was an honor I never could have imagined and a feeling I will never forget. Sarah spoons potatoes into Claire's mouth. There, sweetie. Daniel, look. Baby Claire took her first bite. Daniel comes out of his thought and experiences another feeling he never felt before, the love of an innocent baby in his care. How could this be? A lifelong fear was gone. The fear of having a child would make him feel old and burdened. He was experiencing just the opposite now. He scooped up a spoon of pudding. Let's try something sweet, Claire. Glancing at Sarah, he reassures, girls do fancy sweets. <laughs> she takes the he she takes the pudding in her mouth and gives a cute wiggle in delight. Sarah starts laughing and the others join in. And they fancy being spoiled and getting attention, don't they, Claire? Her mother coos her. Daniel was having an epiphany, a breakthrough as was everyone, smiling, enjoying the festive occasion. They were all family. For one joyous, splendid moment in time, the portal had removed all barriers and superstitious beliefs and given them a glimpse of heaven. To God be the glory. On Thanksgiving Day, it was a sight to behold. Ironically, having earlier read from Lincoln, the plea for peace and restoration to a divided people and a broken land. It was sent to him by telegram. Sherman held in his hand the confirmation that such language. What had happened was that Sherman had sent a telegram to Jefferson Davis, the president of the South, and to Governor Brown, the governor of Georgia, a telegram offering them peace to lay down their arms. And he would leave them alone. They would just leave the South alone. They would take no prisoners. They would burn no buildings. They wouldn't do anything. They would just lay down their arms. They'd leave. They'd leave the entire South. Well, Sherman held in his hand the confirmation that such language had fallen on deaf ears and knew what he had to do. As he led his two major generals into the library, he read from an earlier wire he'd requested sent directly to Jeff Davis, Governor Brown in Georgia, and Robert E. Lee, the prideful, stubborn general, with permission from Grant, a final offer to surrender and also leave Georgia unharmed. Under the current situation, the South was hanging on the edge of annihilation. They'd already defeated Atlanta and Dick Vicksburg. There was nothing really left except up in Virginia. They had no chance of succeeding. succeeding. Sherman's foresight was merely a formality, he thought, in order to save lives and greater entreaty. After reading the short but emphatic reply of no intention of surrender. Sherman lit the paper, the prideful fools on fire. Gentlemen, he said, Georgia will howl. General Sherman, Tecumseh Sherman, left in the dark of night, yet it was a darker night in the soul of the South. Death was coming to an aristocracy that had arisen. 
Despite that, our founders had deplored such a tyranny and left behind in Europe. A new dawn was coming for the black man and woman. A constitutional freedom they had originally intended for all, unbeknownst to Sherman, he would be hailed as Moses by the massive following of freed slaves on his march to the sea. He left to an undisclosed site north of Atlanta to wait upon the only factor remaining between his forces and victory that was not in his control, and that was the weather. Those officers inside the manor had also left in various strategic locations. Stillwater and his battalion were just over the hill waiting for orders. The soldiers encamped across the creek were in the process of pulling out as Daniel watched from the veranda. It was a remarkable sight to behold, he thought knowing that approximately 60 days they would be a part of 60,000 troops who marched on foot 285 miles, the South had no chance. The only thing left to defeat was their morale. Well, that's my chapter on Thanksgiving, God and Country. My one fan audience, thank you, dear. Here we go, station break, and then we'll talk a little more about how you can win your battle in the Ukraine. Lawrence, to Enlightenment Radio, home of the ultimate knowledge of body, soul, and spirit, and unlimited music 24 7. Be sure and visit our website at enlightenment-radio.com. There you can journey through the mystical voyage and also view our schedule of programming. Thank you for listening. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So this is how, if you wonder why, America was chosen and it came to prosper. We could grow our own food. Half the world could not grow their own food. Food, China, Bangladesh, all these places. They couldn't grow their own food and feed themselves. We had ingenuity. We brought in the age of industrial age that changed the world. We brought in ideas by science, by pop. Even politics came to, there was bickering, yes, but they came to some good laws that were benevolent. They were of God. The Constitution, because all 55 founding fathers were not Trinitarians, they fled the tyranny of the Trinity and worshiped the one true God, which is what I'm urging the Ukraine to do. Not a Trinity. He's not a three-headed God. 
Jesus Christ is not God. He's the Son of God. It says 67 times, and it never says he's God once. So if you, you get 67 points against zero in a ball game, you won the ball game. So I have one more thing I want to read to you. When I went to Andersonville Prison, there was... Let me see if I wrote it in the chapter or if I have to retell it. There is a monument there. Okay, I think I tell it in the, in the story here. Okay, it's called Providence Spring. And I want, I before I wrote this book, I must tell you, as much of a believer as I am, well, I, was, I skipped one thing. The founding fathers got the Constitution by revelation from God. There was no other way that thing could have been written and still be alive today. Just like the Bible is still here with us today, despite all the unbelievers. So it's called Divine Providence. It's a granite building where water comes up out of it. And it's in Andersonville Prison, where my great-great-grandfather died. Prisoners turned to a narrow stream and collected rainwater for drinking as the stockade's population exploded. Right at this time, it held 36,000 men in a prison that was designed for 9,000. And all it was was a fence with a bunch of sharpshooters standing around. That's all they had. No trees, no nothing. They had to build tents out of their coats. The stream became a quagmire of mud, stagnant water, and human waste. The polluted water claimed thousands of lives, with no relief in sight for the remaining soldiers. During the second week of August, 1864, 33,000 prisoners nervously watched as ominous clouds rolled in, standing in a four-walled stockade with a muddy dirt floor and no covering from the elements. The, the rain began slowly, but quickly became a deluge. It saturated the thousands struggling for shelter underneath. Wood blankets, lean-tos, they called them. A flash flood destroyed a section of the stockade wall, and cannon shot rang out, calling the guards to their post. The prisoners could do little but huddle together, soaking wet and cold. They began to what? Pray out loud. A few days later, as the rain subsided, prisoners found a Along the deadline in the eroded hillside, a spring of fresh water. They began using sticks and cups to reach across the water, and as soon as was built in front, and soon a trough was built in the front of the funnel, the clean water into the stockade, some believing that the appearance of the spring to be a miracle of God, and hence beginning calling it Providence Spring. Within a month of the spring's appearance, the majority of prisoners were evacuated to other facilities, but stories of Providence Spring quickly spread. This is what happened. One of the first written accounts of the spring came from Clara Barton, and her, she's the head of the Red Cross, and her report to the Army's expedition by the site. By early 1900s, the story emerged that lightning struck inside the prison stockade, and that a spring burst forth yielding a tremendous geyser. This account reinforced the belief that the prisoners were spared through divine intervention. In 1901, the Women's Relief Corps and Andersonville survivors dedicated a spring house, making Providence Spring the only feature inside the stockade walls. For 150 years, Providence Spring has been an important stop among visitors to Andersonville. It's only two hours south of where I am. For previous generations, no trip to Andersonville was complete without taking a sip from the spring. Today, Providence Spring is a place where visitors can touch and feel the cool waters and eventually gave new life and hope to thousands of Americans. That's a true story. My grandparents told me that, that lightning has struck the ground as I stood and prayed, and boom, a geyser of water. If you ever tasted spring water, 
I've been to Providence Spring. I've been to other springs before. It's the best tasting, pure, cleanest, purest water you could ever taste. And it's cool, soothing. You can do other things with it. You can bathe with it. It's just the best thing in happened to them. And that's a true story. And that you can go to Andersonville Prison. And that spring is still springing water. So I had one thing to say to you Ukrainians. I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to tell you what to do. And you're going to win this war by divine providence because I learned that God does intervene in man's affairs. I learned that he does take care of us. I learned that he does care about us. I learned that he intervened during this greatest war and tried to kill America and tried to destroy our belief system. So tomorrow, have your family sit around a table of food and say this prayer, and the devil will flee your country. And we know who the devil is. They will flee your country. And tell them not to settle for that stupid truce. Get all your land back, including Crimea. Get it all back. And pray around the table tomorrow this prayer. Lord, one God. We worship you, one God, and your son, Jesus Christ. And we believe that you will intervene in this war, and that you will protect us and keep us safe, that you will clear the enemy out of our land that is ours. And we want freedom we want peace, and we want freedom of religion to believe in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you. We have the gratitude before you to have this food in front of us, to have this prosperity and our lives spared at this time. Thanks for keeping us alive, well, and prosperous in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ and running the enemy out of our country. In the name of Jesus Christ. You say that tomorrow. And you watch what happens. This is Mystic Guide, your host. I'm leaving the air right now, but you do that, and thank you. And we're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner like never before this weekend. Thank you. God bless. Done.